Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. What evidence do we have that Jesus of Nazareth really walked out of that tomb alive 1,986 years ago in Jerusalem? This is part two of a two-part series we're doing on the resurrection, the evidence for it. If you didn't hear the last week's show, go back and listen to the podcast. By the way, we have an app, if you don't know. The two words in the app store you need to put in are cross-examined, two words, cross-examined, cross-examined with a D on the end of it, and you'll find the app. We've had, gee, I don't know, we're approaching 200,000 downloads of that app now. People are finding it helpful. And thank you for putting some good reviews up on our uh, iTunes official podcast page. That helps uh, more people to see it. If you put a good review up there. So thanks for doing that. We're talking about the evidence for the resurrection. And last week we talked about the fact that truth exists, that God exists, that miracles are possible. And we talked about the the fact that the New Testament documents are written early. And we were going through the evidence for the eyewitness testimony of the New Testament. And I was talking about the fact that the Bible, or I should say the New Testament documents to be more precise, Cite at least 30 people. This is not an exhaustive list, but when we wrote the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, we we found 30 people, more than 30 people, who were mentioned by the New Testament documents that are also mentioned either in archaeology or other sources outside the New Testament. Uh, people like Agrippa, uh, Agrippa I, Agrippa II. Ananias, uh, Bernice, Augustus, Caiaphas. We even have Caiaphas's ossuary, his burial box. It's an amazing discovery, by the way. They they discovered the the high priests, the high priest who sentenced Jesus to die. They actually found his burial box, called an ossuary, limestone box, in about I think it was 1990 over there in Jerusalem. You can see this burial box if you go to the Israel Museum there in uh, Jerusalem. And it's just sitting on a on a glass table there. It's amazing. Uh, we know he existed. We know uh, Felix. We know uh, Gallio. Uh, these are just a few of the people. All the Herods, the Bible names, <laughs> they're mentioned outside the New Testament. James, Jesus himself is mentioned outside the New Testament a lot. John the Baptist is mentioned. Pilate. All of these people, Tiberius Caesar, all these people are named outside the New Testament. And they're mentioned in the New Testament doing what people outside the New Testament say they were doing. This is not a made-up story. In fact, one piece of evidence that isn't often discussed, but we talked about it on this program, gee, it must be 10 years ago now. It's been a long time. It's the evidence from names in the New Testament. In fact, we have an article on our website written by my friend Jonathan McClatchy. It goes all the way back to uh, June of uh, 2012, you can go to crossexamine.org, click on the blog. Again, this is an evergreen post. Doesn't matter it was written seven years ago. The, the information in it is still spot on. Nothing's changed. And the title is, Are the Gospels Based on Eyewitness Testimony? The Test of Personal Names. Richard Baucom, an amazing uh, scholar over in the UK, went through all the names in the New Testament 
and compared them to names from first century sources uh, in the area of Israel and said, are these names the right kind of names? And he found out that they were. And the bottom line is, is that the, let me just cite one stat here. The top two men's names, Simon and Joseph in the first century Palestine, the area, the Israel area, outside the New Testament have a frequency of 15.6%. The frequency of those names in the Gospels and Acts is 18.2%. So very close. Jonathan goes on to say, and this is all from Balkum's research, by the way. Jonathan McClatchy goes on to say in this post on our website, the frequency of the nine or the top nine men's names outside the New Testament is 41.5%. Whereas the frequency in the Gospels and Acts is 40.3%. The frequency of the top two women's names, Mary and uh, Salome, outside the New Testament is 28.6%. The frequency of the Gospels and Acts is 38.9%. Uh, the top, the frequency of the top nine women's names outside the New Testament is 49.7%, and uh, in the Gospels and Acts, it's 61.1%. In other words, the names are lining up. The names you would expect in first century Israel area are the same names you find in the New Testament. And this is true in our country right now. Because if, uh, I mean, what were the top names, say, in the 1950s for. A man. Well, maybe names like Frank, like my name. Nobody names their kid Frank anymore, right? Um, Richard, maybe, right? These are the names that were big back in the day, right? How many ki- how many people now do you know name their, their kids Frank and Richard? They don't, okay? How about women's names? Well, probably Mary. In fact, I know this is the case. I'm, this is from memory 10 years ago when I did the research on this. Mary was the top woman's name in... The United States, say, in the 1950s. It's not anymore. Mary's like number 65, okay? What are the top names now? Well, names like Sarah, right, are much more prevalent than Mary. I don't have the the list of names in front of me, but you get the idea, okay? My son's name, one of my son's name is Austin. Nobody would name their kid Austin in the 1950s, all right? Now, you, you see a lot of Austins. In other words, the usage of names changes by generation, and there's there's no real way the writers of the New Testament could write what they wrote if they were writing in the second century than if they were writing in the first century. They knew they were in the culture and they couldn't have made all these names up and gotten them all right if they were writing from a, in, a, from, in another place in another generation. In fact, Balkum did the research and found out that the, the frequency of names among Jews in the Israel area, in the first century, was different than the names for Jews in the Egypt area in the first century. You couldn't even write the New Testament documents from Egypt in the first century and get the names right if you were making it up. You'd have to be in Israel or in the area around Israel in order to do this. So that's pretty compelling evidence, in my view, that the writers of the New Testament were in their cultural element when they wrote. And they're not making it up. There's a very good little book that's just come out, I want to say, within the past eight or nine months. I've read the book already, and maybe I'll quote from it later in this program. It's a book written by Peter Williams over in the UK. And uh, the book is called, 
let me get the uh, title right. Can we trust the Gospels? Peter J. Williams. Peter's a, a nice man. He's a scholar over there in Tyndale House in the UK. And this little book, I mean, it's not very long. I'm going to say it's a little over 100 pages. It covers the basis really well uh, on uh, the New Testament documents and, and the fact that we can trust them. The Gospels he's just looking at here. Can we trust the Gospels? Very good little book. And he covers some of this data about the names, and I think it's in Chapter 3, of uh, of this book, Can We Trust the Gospel? So you can look at our website and look for Jonathan McClatchy's article uh, on names. You can also get Peter J. Williams' new book, Can We Trust the Gospels, on this. So we have eyewitness accounts uh, from the new in the New Testament documents. And archaeological discoveries have been made. We have the, the Pilate Stone. We know Pilate existed. That was found in Caesarea, the coastal town. Uh, in the Mediterranean, on the Mediterranean, that was the real headquarters for the Romans. It wasn't Jerusalem; it was Caesarea. And when you go there, you realize why it's a beautiful Mediterranean coastal town. That's where I'd want to be too. I'd rather be there than than in in Jerusalem, which was far from the coast. Also, I mentioned the the ossuary of Caiaphas was discovered. We found a crucified victim's bones from uh, fifty or so A.D. in Jerusalem. And the heel bone with the nail going through it, you can see it's right next to the Caiaphas ossuary in the Israel Museum right there in uh, in Jerusalem. I mean, there are archaeological discovery after archaeological discovery confirms that there's a lot of good historical data coming out of not only the New Testament, but also the Old Testament. So check all that out. I also want to mention the new Essentials course, Life's Compass, Jesus, You, and the Essentials of the Faith. I'm going to begin to teach right here this coming Monday, May 6th, I think it is. And if you want to be a part of the premium course where you and I interact live on Zoom video, you need to sign up soon. We're running out of seats. Back in two. Thank you for listening to the Cross-Examine podcast. This material is made available to you for free by the contributions of listeners like you. If you wish to support future podcasts, just go to crossexamine.org and click on the donate button or simply use the donate feature directly on our app. Thanks. The resurrection just occurred last week, 1,986 years ago, and thank God literally that it did. Otherwise... This life wouldn't have much meaning, ultimately, because we'd all just die and become worm food. But thanks to Christ, he lived the perfect life in our place and rose from the dead to prove he was God. And by trusting in him, he'll take our punishment away from us. And we can live with him and our loved ones forever. And the evidence for this, I think, is quite good. We've been going through the evidence. We were talking just before the break about eyewitness details. You know, there's another aspect of evidence that I find quite compelling it's called embarrassing stories there's a principle that that historians use when they're trying to figure out whether someone's telling the truth or not it's called the principle of embarrassment it goes like this if there's something embarrassing to the author or authors in the text it's probably true why because you're not going to make up details that embarrass yourself you're not going to make up stories that make you look bad you might make up stories that make you look good but not stories that make you look bad right you'll you'll lie to make yourself look good you won't lie to make yourself look bad well the new testament writers have filled the new testament with embarrassing stories they never would have invented for example they how many times do they depict themselves as dim-witted right they fail to understand what jesus is saying they don't they don't quite get it in fact they don't really understand the 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 jesus's main followers the apostles the disciples They don't really understand his mission until he's already ascended to heaven. 
They don't get it until then. They're uncaring. They fall asleep on Jesus not once but twice. In his greatest hour of need, stay up with me and pray. We'll do it, Lord. What do they wind up doing? They wind up conking out on him. They make no effort to give Jesus a proper burial. In fact, Joseph of Arimathea buries Jesus. Who is Joseph? Well, he's a member of the Sanhedrin. He would be considered a bad guy if he's a member of the Sanhedrin because the Sanhedrin sentenced Jesus to die. Yet they, they depict Jesus as, a, I mean, Joseph as a good guy. And they also put Jesus in a Jewish tomb. They never would have invented that. Why? Because if he wasn't in a Jewish tomb, quite obviously the Jews would have said, you're lying, he's not in our tomb. He was in the Jewish tomb. In fact, they even said that the disciples came and stole the body while the guards were asleep. They admitted the tomb was empty. By the way, it's not just Matthew who tells us that that was their story. There's even a Jewish source early on that admits that the tomb was empty by saying the disciples came and stole the body while the guards were asleep. You don't need to come up with an alibi or I should say an explanation for an empty tomb if his body's still in there. They're admitting the tomb is empty. And by the way, the, obviously the, the, uh, the uh, disciples came and stole the body while the guards were asleep is a bad explanation for at least three reasons. Reason number one, if you're a Roman guard on duty and you'll fall asleep on watch, what happens to you? Yeah, you're toast. You're not going to survive that. Reason number two, if you're a Roman guard on duty and you fall asleep on watch, how do you know what happened? Well, we were asleep here, and while we were sleeping, we noticed that the disciples came right down here. and so You wouldn't even know what happened if you were asleep. The third reason it makes no sense is because the disciples had no motive to steal the body. Why would they steal the body and invent a resurrected Jesus that got them excommunicated from the synagogue and then beaten, tortured, and killed? It makes no sense. No, there's no motive to do this. Also, they are rebuked. Peter's called Satan by Jesus. That doesn't look good. That's their leader. And, and, and the Lord is calling him Satan. And then he says, I'll never deny you, Lord. Peter does. What does he wind up doing? He winds up denying him three times. This is not a made-up story. And then at the crucifixion, the disciples run away. This is like a Monty Python movie. Run away! They all run away. And who are the brave ones? The women. The women are the brave ones. Now, who wrote the New Testament down? Yeah, men. Now, what man is going to say that he was hiding for fear of the Jews while the women went down and discovered the empty tomb? Gentlemen, would you make up that story? Ladies, would your husband say that he was hiding while you went down and discovered? No, you would never say that if you're making it up. You would make yourself be a hero if you were a man, if you were making it up. That's what I would do. I wouldn't make I wouldn't say I was Mr. Sissy Pants why the women went down and discovered the empty tomb. And why would you never say the women were the first witnesses in that culture? Forget about the fact that it's embarrassing to men, it is, but this is another reason you'd never do this. Because a woman's testimony was not considered on par with that of a man. So if you're making up the New Testament story, you'd only have the men be the first witnesses. Yet all four gospels say the women were the first witnesses, which is telling us what? They really were. They had no motive to make it up. Yet, all four Gospels say the women were the first witnesses. As embarrassing as it was. I actually had a lady come up to me once and she said, Frank, I know why Jesus appeared to the women first. I said, why? And she said, because he wanted to get the story out. I said, that is an excellent point. I had not thought of that. Because ladies, when your man comes home from work, does he say much? (laughs) No. There could have been a nuclear explosion down at the plant. He's not going to tell you. I mean, you'll see it on the news before you hear it from him. You'll be watching eyeball news going, 
Hey, Han, what happened? Oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you. The nuke blew up. I've been hot for three days. You know, he's not going to tell you. He's just not. Also, this is really embarrassing. Paul rebukes Peter for being wrong about Peter's behavior. In Galatians chapter 2, you got one apostle rebuking another apostle right there in the Bible. They're not making this up. They're doubters. I can't even believe this verse is in the Bible, in the New Testament. This, this makes absolutely no sense if they're making it up. Because at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, this is the, the climax of the Gospel of Matthew, the Great Commission, you know, go therefore, make disciples of all nations. Notice he doesn't say make believers. He says make disciples. There's a difference. Anyway, it, it says right there in verse 17, Jesus is giving them the Great Commission and speaking of his disciples who are there to listen to this, it says some believed, but some doubted. He's standing right in front of them and they're doubting it's him. You think they made this up? Look, if you're making this up, you say, we never doubted. Nobody doubted. Everyone believed it happened. But this sounds authentic, doesn't it? I mean, I might be there doubting. I'd be going, really? He's risen from the dead? Are you kidding me? How can this be? Yeah. They're not making this up. There's even potentially embarrassing details about Jesus. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus is considered out of his mind by his own family who come to seize him and take him home. They think he's nuts. Now, you may have heard the scholars say, well, the New Testament writers embellish Jesus to be God. Oh, really? Then why is Mark chapter 3 in there? Which, by the way, again, is, usu- is universally recognized to be the earliest gospel. There's no embellishment here. They're just telling the family thought they didn't get it. Embarrassing. He's deserted by many of his followers in John chapter 6. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't have any part of me. <laughs> this is a hard teaching said many people stopped following him at that point. Think they made that up? He's not believed in by his own brothers. That's not very flattering. That's embarrassing. He's thought to be a deceiver. He's called a madman. He's called a drunkard. He's called demon-possessed. He has his feet wiped with the hair of a prostitute. It was easy to have been seen as a sexual advance. Oh, notice there are two prostitutes in Jesus' bloodline. Who are they? Rahab and Tamar. Do you think Matthew and Luke got together and said, when they're putting together genealogies and said, you know, I really think we ought to spice up the Messiah's bloodline a little bit. Let's put a couple of prostitutes in there. No, I don't think so. They're just telling the truth as embarrassing as it is. In fact, there's a lot of embarrassing people in the bloodline of the Jewish Messiah, Judah, from where we get the term Jew from. Not a good guy. Read about him in Genesis. I think it's 37, 38, somewhere in there. Not a good guy. David's in there. David, a man after God's own heart. Yeah, but he's a liar, adulterer, and a murderer. Gee, I guess there's hope for the rest of us then, huh? Bathsheba's in there. In fact, one of the writers, I think it's Matthew. I'd have to look this up. But one of the two genealogy writers, when he gets to her name in the um, in the genealogy, he won't even mention her name. You know what he says instead of Bathsheba? He says, Uriah's wife. Ooh. In fact, here it is. I just looked it up. Genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Matthew 1, 6. 
It says, and Jesse, the father of King David, David is the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Who is Uriah? Husband of Bathsheba, whom David had killed so he could have Bathsheba. He won't even mention her name. I mean, he's telling the truth. But he's pointing out that this is embarrassing. They're not making this up, friends. No, this is not a made-up story. There's many more embarrassing details. We have some of them in, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. We have some of them in stealing from God, why atheists need God to make their case. Those two books you can get if you want to go further. This is not an invented story. Now, does embarrassing testimony alone show that they're telling the truth? No, not alone. But you add all this up, you realize there's a very strong case. The New Testament writers are telling the truth. And... They also go, go ahead and die for it then. That's another reason to believe that they're telling the truth. Why would they invent all this? Answer, they wouldn't invent it. Remember, the, the writers of the New Testament, all with the exception of Luke, were all Jewish believers in Yahweh. They, had, they already thought they're God's chosen people. Why would they invent a resurrected Jesus that got them excommunicated from the synagogue and then beaten, tortured, and killed? The answer is they wouldn't. And yet they're saying that Jesus had risen from the dead. Well, and then they go die for it? They suffer and die? That doesn't seem to make any sense unless it was true. And by the way, we cover more more of this kind of data in this new course I'm going to teach on the essentials. It's called uh, Life's Compass. Uh, Jesus, You and the Essentials of the Faith begins, I think it's on May 6th. I think that's a Monday. Here's some of the questions we're going to answer, by the way. What's wrong with the world? What's the Bible all about? What's the evidence that God created the universe? What's the evidence he's sustaining the universe? What does it mean to be made in God's image? What are the essentials of Christian salvation or the essentials of Christianity? How do faith and works relate? What are six mistakes we make interpreting the Bible? Who is Jesus? What is God like? Where is Jesus in the Old Testament? What's the Trinity? How does the Trinity impact love and relationships? Why is the resurrection so important? Why does God God care about faith? What's the purpose of life? How should we live then? These are all questions we're going to deal with and many more. They're all on that landing page. If you go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses, check that out there. And if you, you can take the basic course anytime you want, that's self-paced. But if you want to be involved in the eight Zoom sessions we're going to have together where we'll interact live via Zoom video and you can ask me questions, you can ask other people questions in the class, we can have a good dialogue then you got to sign up for the premium version and you got to sign up soon because we're going to run out of space. We try and keep the classes small enough so everybody can interact during the Zoom sessions. Just go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses and you'll see it there. Life's compass. Is there a compass, a true compass to life? Or should you just live life any way you want? There's no meaning. There's no purpose. No, there is purpose. And we're going to talk about it. Life's compass, Jesus, you and the essentials of the faith. So check all that out. And if you're listening to this late afterwards... You might be able to get in in the end of the first week here of May, or you can take the basic course anytime you want. So just go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses, and we're going to talk a lot more about the evidence for Christianity, not only in this course, but in the next segment right here on the podcast, on the radio program. So don't go away. You're listening to Cross Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Back in two. College campuses are hostile to the Christian faith, and three out of four young people walk away from the church once they go to college. That's why we go to college campuses and present I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist in the United States and even all over the world. When we do this, 
we don't charge students a dime. That's why we need your financial support. In fact, over the past couple of years, we've been able to grow dramatically because of your generous support. And 100% of your donations go to ministry. Zero percent go to building. So when you give to Cross-Examined, you'll be giving to help us go reach young people where they are. Would you consider giving today? Thank you so much, and thank you so much for what you've done already. Do you know that the writers of the New Testament were all Jewish believers in Yahweh, with the exception of Luke? He was the only Gentile. They're all believers in a religion that had been around for at least 1,500 years. Let's just say since Moses. Of course, it went prior to that to back to Abraham, but the law came to Moses in about 1400 or so AD, BC, 1400 BC. So um, 1400 years later, after having all this history where they believed in animal sacrifice, a binding law of Moses, strict monotheism, they believed in the Sabbath, they thought the Messiah would come and conquer Rome and that they had their, the sign of the covenant was circumcision. Suddenly, these people who wrote down the New Testament, they did away with animal sacrifice. After it being in place for a thousand years, they said, no, Christ's sacrifice is enough. We don't need to slay these lambs anymore because here's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All these lambs we've been slain are just symbols of the true lamb. They don't believe in a binding law of Moses anymore. They say Christ's life has fulfilled the binding law of Moses. In fact, Jesus himself did away with the dietary laws in Mark chapter seven, which I particularly like because that means I can have bacon. Before, they believed in a strict monotheism. Afterwards, they're believing in a trinity. Although the trinity is actually taught in the Old Testament, it's much clearer in the New. Actually, when you look back, you go, it's pretty clear in the Old as well. In fact, we had a uh, podcast here two months or so ago with Jonathan McClatchy on the trinity in the Old Testament. And there are, I think, four posts on our website where McClatchy goes through all the evidence for the trinity in the Old Testament. But look, they made a pretty big transition from the Old to the New. Before, these writers of the New Testament believed in the Sabbath. In fact, they thought they could be stoned for not obeying the Sabbath. Afterwards, they say, nope, don't need to obey the Sabbath anymore. In fact, we're going to worship on Sunday. And Paul even says, don't let anyone tell you you have to obey any Sabbath or festival day. He says that in Colossians chapter 2. Why would they do away with the Sabbath? Because the Sabbath has arrived. The Sabbath signified rest. Who's the rest? Jesus is the rest. Before they believed in a conquering Messiah, afterwards they said, well, first we're going to get a sacrificial Messiah. Yeah, Isaiah chapter 53 will tell us that. And Jesus is that sacrifice. Oh, he'll conquer when he comes again, but it's a sacrificial Messiah. Before they believed in circumcision, afterwards baptism and communion. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what caused these people who are God's chosen people to abandon all of those ancient practices that they held dearly for nearly 1,500 years. What would cause them to abandon all that and adopt all these new theological principles or theological truths? What would cause them to do that? Well, the only thing I can think of is what psychologists call an impact event. What's an impact event? An impact event is an event that occurs in your life that is so dramatic, so impactful, that it can change your perspective 180 degrees some impact events are so dramatic that you'll remember the impact event for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years if you're old enough. 
You might not remember what you had for breakfast this morning, but you'll remember an impact event that happened 50 years ago if you're old enough. In fact, probably only a very small number of you will be able to answer this question, but if you can remember where you were and what you were doing, November 22nd, 1963, what would you say? You can remember something about that day, right? If you're old enough. Why? Because President Kennedy was assassinated that day. It's my earliest memory. I was two years old. I remember my mom crying over it. In fact, I can still see my mom to this day. I can see her crying, sitting on that ottoman when she was 26 years old. She's 81 now, but I can see her when she was 26. That's my earliest memory. Impact event. Never saw my mom cry like that before. Where were you when the second plane hit the tower? Yeah, you can remember it if you're old enough. Where were you when Trump won the presidency? I don't care if you thought that was good or bad. That's not the point. The point is that was a kind of an impact event. Nobody expected it. And he won. You can remember where you first heard the news. Why? Impact event. Now, question. Do you think a resurrection would have been an impact event? I mean, do you think if Jesus of Nazareth really walked out of that tomb 1,986 years ago, do you think that the Jews who were following him around for three years would have remembered it? (laughs) Do you think it would have changed their perspective a little bit? Do you think they would have remembered it till the day they died? Yeah. Yeah, obviously. If you can remember Kennedy, if you can remember... 9-11, if you can remember Trump winning the presidency, all those things pale in comparison in terms of the impact to someone walking out of a tomb. Uh, Trust me, I'm not trying to minimize 9-11 or the Kennedy assassination. I'm just trying to say that if you were there and you saw Jesus alive after being dead, you'd go, what? This is unbelievable. What? That's why some of them doubted. That's an authentic comment there. I probably would have doubted too. I don't blame Thomas at all. Let me put my finger in his side. Make sure it's him. So, Jesus really did walk out of that tomb. And they had no motive to make this up. I mean, why would they make up a new religion? Remember, they're they're already Jewish people who believe in Yahweh. They're already God's chosen people. Why are they inventing this new religion? We're going to start a new religion. We are. Yeah, what's it going to get us? Well, first we get kicked out of the synagogue, and then we get beaten, tortured, and killed. Well, sign me up. No, I don't think so. I don't think they're making this up. That makes literally no sense. Now, I get the question a lot. Maybe you'd get the question a lot if you're a Christian. Are there any non-Christian writers that talk about Jesus and the apostles? Well, yeah, there are. Maybe a little bit later in this broadcast, we'll mention them. But you know what's often underneath that request for non-Christian writers? is an illicit assumption. What's the illicit assumption? The illicit assumption is this. Well, you know, we can't really trust the New Testament writers because they were religious people. And we know religious people invent things. They make things up. Really? Hmm. What motive did the Jewish writers of the New Testament have to make up the resurrection? What earthly motive would they have? None. They had every motive to say it wasn't true, not every motive to say it was Because by saying it was true, they got kicked out of the synagogue and then beaten, tortured, and killed. No, this is not a made-up story. The secular writers weren't eyewitnesses, actually. The New Testament writers were. And they 
they had every motive to say it wasn't true. They didn't have a bias to say it was true. They'd have a bias to say it wasn't true. Yet they said it was true because it really was. It really happened. Why would they die for a known lie? You say, time out, Frank. We know that there are some Muslims that will die for, for Islam. How does that differ from Christianity? I mean, if you're going to say that martyrdom somehow proves Christianity, don't you have to say that martyrdom proves Islam? No. Why? Because there's a huge difference between the Muslim martyrs of today and the New Testament martyrs of New Testament times. Well, there's a lot of differences, but just for our purposes, the Muslim martyrs of today haven't witnessed anything. They just have faith that Islam is true. But the New Testament martyrs of New Testament times witnessed Jesus rise from the dead. They saw Jesus. They touched Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They verified with their own senses that Jesus had risen from the dead. Some people will die for a lie they think is the truth. Nobody will die for a lie they know is a lie. And the New Testament writers were in a position to know whether it was a lie or not. And they went to their deaths anyway. You can't get better evidence than that unless you were there yourself. So no, the martyrdoms aren't the same. So I don't see why anyone would die for a known lie. You might die for something you think is true, but isn't true. But you won't die for something you know is false. And none of them recanted. None of them ever said, no, it wasn't true. So there's a big difference between the New Testament writers of New Testament times and the Muslim martyrs of today. So we've got early testimony. We've got eyewitness testimony. We've got embarrassing stories in there they never would have invented. We have these excruciating deaths. We also have something I call embedded testimony. In the book Stealing from God, I call it elaborate testimony. Same thing. I don't have a lot of time to explain this here, but this is the best evidence you might, may have never heard of, that the New Testament writers are independently witnessing the same historical events. What are these events? Well, the events of Jesus and the apostles. Um, and if you want to get examples of what I'm talking about, all you need to do is Google two words, undesigned coincidences, undesigned coincidences. If you Google those two words, you will find what I'm talking about. I'll just give you one quick example of undesigned coincidences that um, couldn't the. Well, let me just give you the example, because it's really hard to explain what's going on here. Um, one writer says that um, while they're beating on Jesus, um, one of the guards says, prophesy to me, who just struck you? And you're, you're reading the thing going, why is this a big prophecy? You could see who struck him. I mean, Jesus could see him. He's standing right in front of him. Why would that be a prophecy? But then you go over to another writer, I think it's Luke, who says, who adds a detail that the first writer doesn't. He says, they blindfolded him. Ah, now it makes sense. Jesus was blindfolded. You don't get that from the first account, but you get it from Luke's account. So they're witnessing the same historical event or they're writing about the same historical event who someone saw, like Luke was interviewing people who saw these events. And they're not designing this. These are undesigned. They're not saying, okay, you, you leave out about the blindfold. I'll mention the blindfold and it'll look, it'll look good when we put it together. No, there's, there's scores of these things. Uh, uh, another example. Um, I think in Luke's gospel, 
Pilate interviews Jesus and says, are you the Messiah, the King of the Jews? And Luke says that Jesus says, you have said so. And then Pilate says, I find no fault in this man. Wait a minute. He just admitted the charge. He just said he was the king of the Jews. How could you find no fault in him? Well, you go over to John and John adds more detail. Jesus says, instead of just saying, yeah, you've said so. He says, uh, yes, but my kingdom is not of this world. And that's why Pilate said, okay, I, I see. Okay, you're not, you're, you're a king of another world, but you're not, you're not really the king of the Jews here. Okay, you're kind of loony, you know? That's probably what Pilate was thinking. But he's no threat to Caesar. He's no threat to the Jews here. He's got his own kingdom in his head. So that's why he said, I find no fault in this man. Now, you don't get that by just reading Luke. You're kind of perplexed by reading Luke. We go over to John, and the detail is filled in. It's an undesigned coincidence. It's embedded testimony. They're witnessing the same historical events, or someone was witnessing these. And when, they, when you put the two together, you get a more complete picture. But they couldn't have invented this out of whole cloth. So that's called embedded testimony or undesigned coincidences. That's another line of evidence that the New Testament writers are telling the truth. And we're going to get to more right after the break. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network, our website, crossexamine.org. If you would like to get one video a week from us, just text the word evidence to 44222. Evidence to 44222. We don't give your email address to anyone else, and you'll find these videos are very helpful to share with others. Back in two. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find more. Just type cross-examine or Frank Turek on the search bar. Also, visit our website where we add new videos, articles, and free resources daily. Did Jesus of Nazareth really walk out of the tomb after being dead? Did he do this 1,986 or so years ago? And I think the answer is yes. We've been going through the evidence for it. And uh, one other line of evidence that we can bring to bear, in addition to the early testimony, the eyewitness testimony, the embarrassing testimony, the excruciating deaths they went through, the embedded testimony called undesigned coincidences, is extra biblical testimony. These all begin with the letter E, as you can see here, help you remember them. And the basic New Testament storyline is confirmed by non-Christian sources. And there's about 10 ancient non-Christian sources within 150 years, within 150 years of Jesus's life. People like Josephus, Tacitus, Suetonius, Thales, Phlegon, Pliny the Younger, Emperor Trajan, Emperor Hadrian, the Jewish Talmud, the Greek writer Lucian. When you compile all these brief references uh, from these people, now again, none of these people are eyewitnesses. Um, the only one that lived during the time that the eyewitnesses would be writing, well, maybe not the only one, but certainly Josephus. He was, as they say, born in 37 AD, died in about 100. Uh, maybe there was a couple others there, but he's the earliest, I think. Um, here's what they say. When you add up their brief references to Jesus and the apostles, 12 facts. Number one, Jesus lived during the time of Tiberius Caesar. This is all from non-Christian sources, okay? Number two, he lived a virtuous life. Number three, he, w he was a wonder worker. Number four, he had a brother named James. Number five, he was acclaimed to be the Messiah. Number six, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Number seven, an earthquake and an eclipse occurred when he died. By the way, somebody wrote a question into me and said, is there any evidence there was an earthquake in um, Jerusalem 
in the early 30s AD? The answer is yes. They dated somewhere between 30 and 33 AD. They did some uh, studies on core soil samples in the Dead Sea and said there was an earthquake about that time. Interesting question. Anyway, number eight, uh, Jesus was, was crucified on the eve of the Passover. Number nine, his disciples believed he rose from the dead. That's important. His disciples believed. Notice these, these non-Christian writers aren't saying they believed he rose from the dead. If they were, they wouldn't be non-Christians. They'd be Christians. But certainly they're admitting his disciples believed he rose from the dead. Number 10, his disciples were willing to die for their belief. Number 11, Christianity spread rapidly as far as Rome. And number 12, his disciples denied the Roman gods and worshiped Jesus as God. Notice these 12 facts are exactly what the New Testament says. Now, I don't put any more stock in the, in the, in the non-Christian sources than, than, are, than is necessary. In fact, you could wipe away all these non-Christian sources. I think the Christian sources are much more believable because they were written down by people who had every motive to say it wasn't true. Remember, they're Jewish believers in Yahweh. Why are they inventing this? In fact, we put out a uh, story, a story, a short video um, just last week on this, and uh, it's called "Why Why Christianity Did Not or Why the Bible Did Not Give Us Christianity." It's only a minute and forty seconds. I want to play the audio here because the audio um, is really the whole story, but it's much better when you see the video. And if you would just go to our website and or just go to our cross-examined YouTube channel, crossexamined.org, you can watch this short little video. It gets to the point very quickly because when people say, well, I can't believe uh, the uh, New Testament because it was written down by religious people, just play them this short video. Here it is. The reason we believe in Christianity is because an event occurred, the resurrection. Now, I have to ask you this. Why would the Jewish writers of the New Testament, all were Jewish with the exception of Luke, why would they invent a resurrected Jesus? Why would they say that a man who claimed to be God rose from the dead if it didn't happen? They thought that would be blasphemy for a man to claim to be God. And why would they invent a resurrected Jesus? They already thought they were God's chosen people. They had no motive to invent a resurrected Jesus. And certainly they could not have invented it in Jerusalem, where an empty tomb existed. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, the New Testament writers did not create the resurrection. The resurrection created the New Testament writers. There would be no New Testament if it wasn't for the resurrection. Now, even if the New Testament never existed, Christianity would still be true. Why? Because Christianity is based on an event, the resurrection. Do you realize there were thousands of Christians before a line of the New Testament was ever written? Why? Because an event occurred, the resurrection. You have to have more faith to believe it didn't occur than it did. And if God exists, and he does, and can create the universe out of nothing, then he can certainly resurrect Jesus from the dead. That's why we believe in Christianity. Again, that's a new video, just a week or so old, that we put out for Easter, for Resurrection Sunday. Share it with others. It's on our YouTube channel, uh, crossexamine.org. And again, it's only a minute and 40 seconds. Again, the point here is that... The New Testament wouldn't even exist unless the Jewish writers of the New Testament witnessed something spectacular. Why would Jewish people 
invent a resurrected Jesus. They didn't think there would be a resurrection in the middle of time. They thought there'd be a resurrection at the end of time, but not in the middle. They didn't think one guy would resurrect. And after it happened, they went, wow. And they, their worldview was turned upside down. I mean, they, of course, they still believed in many of the Old Testament uh, commands or in, in the sense that, you know, God is a moral being and all this and, and the history and all that. He, or, or God's nature is moral. Don't get me wrong. Um, they still agreed on all that. But now they said, wow, this, this, is, this is something that we weren't expecting. We weren't expecting a resurrection. And we need to get the word out because the implication of the resurrection is that there is salvation. It's certainly not by the law. Now, some people will say, well, oh, come on. How do we even know that? How do we even know who the authors of the Gospels are? Well, there's no reason to doubt the traditional authorship of the Gospels. But even if you were to doubt that against common sense, I might add, because the early church fathers agreed as to who wrote the Gospels, without any question, the Gospels are written by Jewish people, originally Jewish people. In fact, go back to Peter J. Williams' book, the book I mentioned earlier uh, called uh, Can We Trust the Gospels? Here's what he says um, in chapter three of his book. He goes, scholars disagree on many matters concerning the Gospels, but the one thing that they, they seem almost universally agreed, the Gospels are Jewish. Matthew, after beginning with a 16-verse genealogy and a style characteristic of the Old Testament, contains about 55 quotations from the Jewish scriptures. And throughout his dealing with Jewish customs, debates, language, and politics, Mark begins with a quotation from the Old Testament. And he talks about everything. Um, it's me now, not, not uh, Peter J. Williams anymore. He's talking about all the Jewish aspects of Mark. And then he goes on to talk about the Jewish aspects of John. And then he even says, arguably, the least uh, gospel is, least Jewish gospel is Luke, but in it we find a strikingly detailed knowledge of Jewish thought. For instance, when Jesus is having his dispute with the devil in Luke chapter 4, the matter under discussion is the correct interpretation of Psalm 91, the discovery of one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which shows that this psalm was particularly used to exercise demons, gives a new depth to our understanding of this interaction. Luke's gospel was recorded uh, or has recorded something that exactly fits with the Judaism of the time. And he goes on to say more here. In other words, Jewish people were converted to something they weren't expecting to be converted to. This is not a made-up story. Now, what, what other evidence do we have? Well, you can go back to the Old Testament. We call this expected testimony. And just read Isaiah chapter 53. We've talked about it on this program many times before. Isaiah is written 700 years before Jesus. But if you read Isaiah chapter 53, you will see an uncanny description of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. In fact, the New Testament writers quote Isaiah chapter 53, I think maybe more than any other section of the Old Testament. I mean, it is an amazing prophecy written 700 years in advance. And let me add one more E to our list. The explosive growth of the church out of Jerusalem. It's really difficult to explain how, how Christianity could emerge, explode out of Jerusalem by former Jews if the tomb of Christ wasn't empty because it would have been easy to refute Christianity. And the Jews of the temple and the Romans had every motive to squash Christianity right then and there, and they couldn't do it. Why? Because the tomb was empty. Jesus was still using his body. It was resurrected, but they could have squashed it if his body was in the tomb. 
Now, we have very good reasons to believe in the resurrection, my friends. And it's the most important fact in history for a reason. Because if you trust in Christ, your sins will be forgiven. You might still have trouble in this earth. In fact, you will. Jesus says, on this earth you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Or in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Paul said, everyone who lives a faithful life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But ultimately, you'll be reunited, not only with God, but with your loved ones. You'll be in the very presence of God by trusting in Christ because an infinite being cannot allow injustice to go unpunished. And every one of us have been unjust or unjust. We've all fallen short. That's why we need a savior. If we were all perfect from the beginning to our deaths, we would need a savior, but we're not. Every one of us has fallen short. That's why Christ had to come. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said, yeah, I need a ransom because I can't make it on my own. And what this means, friends, is that you don't achieve your identity. You receive your identity. Let me say that again. You don't achieve your identity. You receive your identity. John, who witnessed Jesus rise from the dead, said he gave us the right to become children of God. Not just created by God, but to be reconciled to God. John 1, 12. He gave us the right because he took our punishment on himself. Have you accepted that? If you haven't, why wouldn't you? It's free. I don't want to give up anything. Well, once Christ gets connected to you, some of the things that you think you want to do now, you won't want to do later. So just trust in Christ and follow him. That's what this is all about, friends. All right, great being with you. Happy Resurrection Week. Keep talking about the resurrection. Keep telling people about it. I'm Frank Turk. Great being with you. See you next week. God bless. We hope you got a lot of value out of this episode. If you think our podcast needs to reach more people, here's what you can do to help. Go to iTunes and type Cross-Examined Official Podcast, four words in the search bar, and leave us a five-star rating. It'll take you less than five seconds. And if you have a few more seconds to spare, leave us a positive review. The best reviews will be featured on future episodes. You can also listen on Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. God bless.